Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join guest speaker Rod Seib, who will speak on John 2, verses 13 to 22, with this message from September 1st, titled, Move to Action. In the um, late 1990s, I believe it was, there were two young men who were studying at Briarcrest Bible College at the time. Um, the names were Mark Martell and Jason Germain. And they formed a Christian rock band, along with a few other guys that they added into the band, uh, that came to be known as Down Here. Uh, quite a popular band. Who's heard of Down Here? And listen to their music. I see some hands and some heads nodding. And though the band has since stopped touring together, they went on to become uh, one of the more successful uh, Canadian Christian um, bands and went on to release six studio albums and had quite a uh, successful career in the Christian music industry. Many of their songs uh, have really deeply impacted me. They've got a a real way with words and the lyrics of their their songs. And uh, I think I have all of their albums. And uh, many of their songs have really impacted me and had a ministry in my own spiritual journey. Well, one of the songs they recorded was entitled The Real Jesus. It was a song about how today we have so many different views and understandings of Jesus, exactly who he was and what he was like, and the longing that each believer has or should have to know and understand who Jesus really was. The lyrics of the song go like this. Jesus on the radio, Jesus on a late night show, Jesus in a dream, looking all serene. Jesus on a steeple, Jesus in the Gallup poll, Jesus had his very own brand of rock and roll. Watched him on the silver screen, bought the action figurine, but Jesus is the only name that makes you flinch. And the chorus goes, oh, can anybody show me the real Jesus? Oh, let your love unveil the mystery of the real Jesus. It goes on, Jesus started something new. Jesus coined a phrase or two. Jesus split the line at the turning point of time. Jesus sparked a controversy. Jesus known for his mercy. Jesus gave a man his sight. Jesus isn't white. Jesus loves the children, holds the lambs. Jesus prays a lot. Jesus has distinguishing marks on his hands. Oh, can anybody show me the real Jesus? Oh, let your love unveil the mystery of the real Jesus. Well, in the couple of times that I've had opportunity to share with you in the past few weeks, just filling in for Pastor Neil as he's been away, I've chosen to focus on spe- some specific accounts in the Gospels as we've looked at how Jesus taught, how he healed, and how he acted. As disciples of Christ, we are called to be like Christ, and we can't really be like Christ if we don't understand who he was exactly and who he is, or if we have competing views and ideas about who he was and is. So this morning we're going to look at another passage that recounts both an action and a teaching from Christ. It's not an unfamiliar account for anybody who has read the Gospels, but it's something in the life of Christ that will give us a better understanding of who he was and what he calls us to be. So let's read through the passage together. Um, If it's on the screen, you have it in your bulletin notes as well on the back page. We're looking at the passage in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, we often think of this passage as one of the few, if not the only uh, recorded instance in which Jesus got angry. And we've talked about how different people have different views of Jesus, what he was like and who he was. And if you look at the full accounts of the gospel, we see at times a Jesus that was sometimes lonely. Sometimes he was sad. Uh, sometimes he could be stern. And you get the idea in some instances he could kind of be sly or, or just the way he, he spoke to his disciples kind of had that little sly edge to him. But often people who are only somewhat familiar with the, uh, with the Jesus of the Bible or perhaps those who formed an image of him uh, as uh, he's been portrayed in some movies or popular literature today, will think of him as just a very gentle person, a kind, calm person, a patient teacher, right? A good teacher that just uh, was there to spread love. He loved everyone. And that, that's it. That's the image they have of him. But in this passage of John's gospel, we get a picture of Jesus that's a bit different than that. Simply by his actions as recorded in this passage, we don't see a Jesus who was gentle or nice. We certainly don't see a Jesus who was worried about offending anyone. We see here a Jesus who apparently wasn't nice all the time. A Jesus who could and would take decisive action when needed. So we want to spend a little time in this passage looking at why Jesus was moved to the actions that he took. Many of people have looked at this passage and have said that Jesus got angry. That in itself is a topic for discussion. We'll look at that in a bit. Uh, if it was his anger that was on display, what did that anger look like? What was at the root of his actions? What was his motivation? Again, as we understand Jesus, we get to know more about God and what lies at the heart of God. And we see a model of who we're called to be as Christ's disciples. First thing, just to mention, if you're uh, familiar with the Bible, that uh, this is an account in John's gospel that comes very early in, in the gospel. And so you take it as something that happened very early in the life and ministry of Jesus. And in fact, in John chapter 2, it follows right after the... Uh, uh, a situation where Jesus was at a wedding and he turned water into wine. And it, John, the way John writes, it's very clear that right after that, Jesus went into the temple and cleared the temple. In the other Gospels, you get a very, very similar, not exactly, but a very similar account of Jesus clearing the temples, which come later, later in the Gospels, later in the life of Christ, and in the week just before um, his uh, arrest and crucifixion. So just to think about, you know, what's going on here, like are there two different accounts? Was it just the one account? 
um, that was just recorded differently. And some have tried to explain to say, well, John's gospel is, is a little bit different. You know, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels that are more in line, a little bit more in line with how uh, events unfolded chronologically. And John was a little bit different. He wasn't so much concerned about recording things chronologically. So maybe it's just, you know, it came at a different point in his, in his book. So that's one uh, example, and so just that there was one uh, instance of that. The other explanation is, yeah, there really was two different incidents. So I don't know what you've uh, heard or read in the past. Uh, there are some differences in the Matthew account. There's no mention of a whip. It just says that Jesus went in and started flipping tables, you know, which, I mean, I really w would have wanted to be there and to see that. But, um, and again, the way, and it says, like in John's gospel, you get the sense that the religious elders uh, questioned Jesus or challenged him like right then and there at that event. In other gospels, it, it says the next day, you know, that that didn't happen. So there are differences. So maybe it did happen more than once, uh, which is kind of neat to think because if it did, it tells us a couple of things. It tells us that those were, that were doing that apparently didn't learn their lesson the first time. And maybe Jesus did that early on in his ministry. And, you know, a year later, you know, Passover comes around again. Jesus goes in again. Here you guys are again. You know, we got to do this again. You guys aren't getting the message. It also tells us then if there were two accounts that Jesus was consistent. He was consistent in his actions. And what angered him and drove him to action the first time, angered and drove him to action the second time. So, in any case, what do we find in this passage? The first thing we see is that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So notice here two main things that are happening. There's the selling of animals for the sacrifice in the temple, and then secondly, changing money for those who are out of town and charging a steep price to do it. So the problem here is then that there were people, especially those that had come from a distance to worship and to offer sacrifices in the temple. And there were the Jews who were in charge of um, uh, managing that temple who were deliberately taking advantage of these people by doing business right in the temple courts. So it moved Jesus and it moved him into action. The first thing we see is he got angry. That's up there. Now, when we talk about anger, I could be up here for the rest of the morning just talking about anger. In my work and role at the Canadian Mental Health Association, one of the things I do there is an anger management program. And it's an eight-week course or session course that I take people through about how to uh, deal with their anger, how to control their anger and understand what anger really is. And, and uh, it's called uh, anger solutions. We don't call it anger management anymore, at least not in our office. but. I get a lot of people that come in uh, through that program. And um, basically it's important to understand some basic things about anger. Uh, you know, whether anger uh, is aggression. Like we talk about how, one of the first things I ask people is, do you think aggression is anger? And a lot of people will say, yes, it is. But it's important to understand and helpful to understand, I think, to separate the aggression from the anger. The anger is the emotion. The anger is the feeling. The aggression is the behavior, is the action, the expression of that anger. And anger can be expressed in different ways. It can be expressed passively. We all find people who are angry, but they stuff it inside, right? They hold it inside. 
When you hold your anger inside, it usually ends up hurting yourself. You have physical problems. When you express your anger aggressively, um, it comes out either through violence, either through words at least, right? The yelling, shouting, swearing perhaps, or physical violence, the punching, the hitting, the beating. And that, those are the kinds of expressions then of anger that usually end up hurting someone else. So there is a question here, did Jesus in fact get angry? And was he acting out of anger? And I have heard some discussions and read some articles that have argued that Jesus in this passage may not have actually been angry. And indeed the passage itself never uses the noun anger, doesn't use the adjective angry, or doesn't use the verb angrily to describe any of the actions that Jesus took. It simply states matter-of-factly what he saw happening in the temple and then what he did about it. Well, we can have an extended discussion about that. Um, it was just interesting for me that when I got into preparing the message from this passage, having had the understanding of, from my experience with offering anger management training and you know having that view and that scope of it, to see that I, I grew up you know, understanding Jesus was angry. He was, he was angry when he did that. And to say, now to ask some questions, was he really angry? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but I think, there must have been something. At the bottom of it, we have to say there was something that happened when Jesus saw what was going on. Something moved him. And I have to believe that there was some anger there, that there was a righteous anger, right? That he saw something wrong that was happening. He took that feeling of anger, that emotion, and then it expressed himself in the actions that he took. In talking about anger, just to mention again, I know uh, I have heard some, some believers, some Christians say that it's wrong to be angry. You know, that anger is a sin. Anger is a, itself is a sin. But that doesn't jive with what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So again, here it's, it's permissible. It's not only permissible, not only permissible, but sometimes even right to get angry. When we see something, it's just the, the qualifier there, the caution is not to express anger in a way that's going to hurt someone, that's going to cross a line. And so, yes, there are times that we should get angry. And Jesus would have been less than perfect in this situation if he had not been highly indignant at the de desecration of the temple that he witnessed. It's important to see why Jesus was angry, because again, in understanding his anger and his actions, we see more about who God is and what he desires for us. So what was he angry about? First of all, he was angry about the commercialization of religion. Jesus says, and he protested, you know, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? So the temple in Jerusalem had this section called the Court of Gentiles. It was a section of the temple in Jerusalem. It was an outer section where the non-Jews were permitted to enter. To venture any further into the temple by a Gentile was strictly forbidden. So it was in this court of Gentiles that Jesus found was full of cattle and sheep pens and cages of doves and the tables for the money changers. The court of Gentiles should have been a place of prayer and meditation, and instead it was dominated by business and transactions offered simply for pure profit. The priests undoubtedly justified this by pointing out 
that it was uh, for the convenience of the numerous pilgrims, travelers and visitors that came to Jerusalem into the temple that perhaps needed to purchase an animal to offer as a sacrifice. The stalls raised money for the temple. Maybe saw it as, you know, this is a fundraiser. It was a necessity for keeping the temple in good running order. So in their minds, they probably saw their actions as very defendable. But by his response and actions, Jesus didn't see it this way. The problem here was that those who claimed to be God's followers, his servants, his ministers, were putting a focus on the commerce or business side of their religious activities. So about, what about us today? Have we as the church commercialized religion in any way that, might, that God might be displeased with? I think it's important to ask this question or to kind of reflect on it or evaluate ourselves from time to time. It's probably safe to say that whenever the church is more interested in raising money than saving souls, it incurs God's greatest displeasure. We have to keep our priorities focused on God and not on wealth and business. I don't know if you recall, uh, this is, I guess I have to say, decades ago, back in the 70s when Christian music artists were first becoming popular. Do you remember some of the early artists? Barry Maguire, Chuck Gerard, Randy Stonehill, um, probably all the older people in, in this building this morning remember those names. The younger ones don't. I remember there was some considerable debate at the time as to whether artists, Christian artists, should be selling their work for high prices. You know, at that time it was, you know, records, LPs, cassettes, didn't have DVDs yet, or digital music. But there was debate, if you remember that, you know, why, okay, should they be selling their music? And, and uh, was it right for them? And if you remember, Keith Green was a Christian artist, music artist, that caused a stir when he chose to give his albums away. Or he, was, he would mail it out or he advertises albums in a way to say, you know, if you request an album or a cassette, you know, I'll send it to you. If you want to send something back in as a donation, whatever you feel is right. He operated it that way. Now again, that can be a whole debate, and I know, you know, high prices of music, uh, it's not just the artists that set that, it's the recording companies, the marketing companies, and all of that. And certainly an artist has a right to make a living out of their musical creativity. But that's where the debate comes in. You know, is it a commercialization of religion? And maybe there's a fine line on it sometimes. Also back uh, in the 70s, 80s, do you remember there was a publication called The Wittenberg Door? And that was a magazine that kind of just delighted in poking fun at the hypocrisy of Christians and churches. And uh, I remember reading one time, you know, they addressed this thing about how, for example, you could go into a store and, um, you know, any store and buy a toaster for 10 bucks. But if you go to a Christian store and uh, somebody slapped a cross on it or a Bible verse on the side of the toaster, suddenly that same toaster was $30. So, you know, maybe that's where it's crossing the line, maybe has some parallel to what we're looking at this morning. So what Jesus was angry about here was that there was a commercialization of religion, a desire to make a financial profit from the practice of the religion itself. Second thing he was upset about or angry about and kind of an extension of this is that he was angry about the exploitation of the faithful. In the uh, parallel Luke account, Luke 19, or in that, that account or that situation where he clears the temple, Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
His description here indicates that dishonest trading was rife in the temple. They weren't just doing an honest business. That would be one thing, to be doing an honest business in the temple. But they were, in fact, cheating and taking advantage of people. Trading was dishonest in two ways. First of all, um, just to understand that when people came to the temple to worship, there was a temple tax levied on all visitors who came to the temple. That was a half shekel, payable. It had to be payable in Jewish currency. The half shekel was the equivalent at that time to about two days wages. So think of it in terms of today, whatever you make uh, over the course of two days, that's a pretty considerable sum. And many people at that time used Roman currency or Greek currency or Egyptian money. And so when they came, they had to change it. To change a Roman coin worth half a shekel uh, cost a minimum of $30, again, kind of the equivalent. And so uh, they figured out this was like probably 15 to 20 percent commission charge, just, you know, just for the opportunity of changing uh, that money into a currency that they were required to use. The second thing that they took advantage of people or exploited people is that when a bull or a sheep was brought to the temple for the sacrifice, it had to be, according to Old Testament law, it had to be without blemish, right? And in the temple, there were actually quality control inspectors that charged, again, they charged another service for their fee of inspecting the animal. And guess what? They invariably found something wrong with the animal. And the unfortunate worshiper was then given the opportunity of buying a beast that had already been passed, approved by the inspectors, for 10 times what it would have cost to purchase the animal just at a local market. So for example, in kind of in today's equivalency, a pair of doves that might have sold for $80 out in a local market, if you had to buy it at the temple, it was suddenly $700, $800. And this was an appalling racket from which the priests took a percentage of the profit. And it's kind of, if you want to think of it in today's terms, kind of like the difference between buying at Costco or Walmart or buying at a convenience store, right? Convenience store, open late or whatever, they know they've got you. Maybe that's not as much of a thing today. I remember in my travels, you know, going, having to buy something at an airport store, right? They kind of got you there. Or if you've traveled, you know, been a tourist and gone uh, on a gondola at Banff or somewhere, you know, to the top of the mountain and there's a restaurant there or a convenience store or a coffee shop, what are you going to pay for a cup, cup of coffee there? They charge the prices they do because they know they've got you. And that was a similar thing that was happening here. They were taking advantage and exploiting the faithful. Finally, Jesus was upset that the Jews were in charge of the temple were hindering the Gentiles' worship. The infernal din of the animals thronging the court of Gentiles made it virtually impossible for the worshipers to pray and quietly meditate in that space. Mark wrote in chapter 11, verse 17 in the Gospel of Mark, he says, And he taught them, and he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? The Jews didn't care about the Gentiles, and they made this clear by filling their court with livestock. It was wrong, and it displeased God, and it still does today, to make it difficult for any particular person or group to worship and come to him, whether it be old or young, male or female, black or white, rich or poor. The real sin here is that they were not honoring the purpose for which the temple was built. Jesus says this is a place where people can come and worship and pray. Filling the courts with animals for sale and tables for exchanging money showed complete disregard for that. 
Well, what does Jesus do? What did he do with his anger? He took action. Jesus, and he showed this in two ways. He didn't fear offending people. He intervened. He took action and spoke up in a situation that wasn't right. He wasn't afraid of offending anyone in the process. What about us? Are we often too silent or simply do nothing because we're afraid of offending someone? Sometimes you might feel that righteous anger. Uh, maybe it's, you know, you're in a, a business meeting, church business meeting or something, and something's happening that you, you just don't, you feel wrong, you know, that something's happening, but you want to say something, but you're too afraid. Well, Jesus was not like this. He had the courage of his convictions and was prepared to seriously annoy people if necessary. He wasn't intimidated by those in authority who found the desecration of the court of Gentiles acceptable. Many Christians don't take a stand over what's wrong for fear of, fear of falling out with those in high places. The second thing it says that Jesus took decisive action. It was decisive. He didn't just ask those people nicely. You know what? Uh, I don't really like what's going on here. Could you have these tables out by 2 p.m. and have the animals removed? No, he took decisive immediate action. He overturned the money changers' tables. He drove the sheep and cattle out into the streets. And it was a dramatic and spectacular protest. Jesus' cleansing of the temple shows what anger rightly expressed and directed can do. Jesus saw something and said, you know what, that's just not right. Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever had that righteous anger where you, you saw something happening and it moved you to want to speak up and to take action? Jesus displayed courage to take on all those with a vested interest in the commercial opportunities presented by the temple. In Matthew 11, again, it records, the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, that is his accusation that they had made God's house a den of robbers, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So when Jesus did this, it was risky. It was a risk for Jesus to take such action because it just elevated the hatred that many people had for him. And that might be our case as well. And that might be that fear that we have of one, not wanting to speak up. But we have to be, have the courage that Jesus had to do as Jesus did. And regardless of what it meant for him, uh, he did what was right. And do we have that same courage when we see something that moves us to that anger? Or do we hold back in fear of what others might say about us or do to us? Third thing about his action was that Jesus' action was proportionate to the offense. Now, he didn't go nuts. I mean, again, it was, it was a violent action that he took. He didn't go beyond what he did. He didn't grab a club and start beating the money changers. Um, if he was really angry, in some cases, he might have, someone might have felt that you could do that. But Jesus made a whip, and... Uh, even that action itself, it, it took time, so he probably had time to think about it. You know, it wasn't just an immediate thing. He made the whip of cords and drove out the traders, and the whip expedited the driving out of the livestock. So he used force, but he didn't use excessive force. He didn't lose his self-control. Sometimes we react in the heat of the moment and we lash out with words or with a physical hit or slap in anger. And this is the expression of anger that leads to sin, leads to hurting someone else. 
We need to be very careful of that. It is very difficult to act proportionately when offended by unrighteous behavior, uh, sometimes even within the church. It's possible sometimes for us to get worked up over triviality. Sometimes we'll, get, uh, we'll express our anger way out of proportion to what the issue is. It might be a simple trivial thing, or the opposite might happen. It might be a very serious thing that's going on that we should uh, really get worked up about, but we don't. We tend to maybe just overlook it. So Jesus gives us the perfect example of what needed to be done. He was angry, but his anger was controlled and measured, and it expressed itself righteously. So the last thing, very quickly, the last point, so Jesus got angry, he took action, and then finally we see that Jesus used the opportunity to prevent, or to present, sorry, truth about himself. And here he tells, in response to the, the Jewish elders' question, he told a riddle, uh, what we in English would call a riddle. In Hebrew, it's called a mashal, or the meaning of the mashal is a veiled saying, where he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So what prompted the riddle? Well, Jesus here uses a teachable moment. He uses a teachable moment. First, we must understand how the Jewish leaders would have viewed Jesus' actions in clearing the temple courts. They would have considered this to be an act of someone who had messianic pretensions. They knew the scripture. There's a passage in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. So the Jews demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? They failed to see that the clearing of the court of Gentiles was in itself a portent of the coming Messiah, and they remained unimpressed by the miracles that Jesus did. Unlike many people who, if you read the next verse, it, we stopped at verse 22, but if you read verse uh, 23 in John 2, it says, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. The religious establishment wanted something special to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. They insisted on putting the onus on Jesus, but it's clear that Jesus never responded to this sort of challenge in the way that they wanted. The kind of a demand for a sign they were making is often thrown out today by those who never really intend to commit themselves to him. I don't know if you've seen this in some people or have experienced it. I know several folk who would say, you know what, I would believe in Jesus, I would believe God, if only he gave me some miraculous sign, some spiritual experience. If Jesus did for me what he did for Saul on, uh, of Tarsus, you know, on the road to Damascus, then I would become a Christian. I remember some years ago, there was somebody very important in my life that had strayed uh, from God. And in talking with them, you know, just saying, you know, uh, please, you know, come back to God. And, and their response was this kind of a thing. Well, if God would do something, if God would just show me the light. And my response was, well, he died for your sins and he rose from the grave. You know, what more of a sign do you need? What does Jesus do here? He refers the skeptics to a future sign. His resurrection and all that would follow from it. 
But we know that ultimately, even this failed to convince them that Jesus was the Christ. And the words of Abraham in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus were prophetic. He says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. That's in Luke 16. If a person is determined not to believe, no amount of evidence will convince him or her. Only those who are truly humbled before God will receive grace to believe. And so that's the next point. Why did Jesus choose to speak in riddles? Jesus often spoke truth in a way that is only fully revealed to those that earnestly seek him. There's a purpose to everything Jesus says and does. And the purpose of this mashal, this veiled saying, here and other places in the gospel when he gives it, is that the truth and the depth of the meaning of it that it reveals changes with the spiritual perception of the hearer or reader. The depth, the truth and depth of meaning it reveals changes with the spiritual perception of the hearer. This is seen in a similar pronouncement from Jesus recorded in Matthew, Matthew 12. It says, some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what's Jesus saying by all of this? He's saying that after dying and making a sacrifice for sin and being raised from the dead, the old order would be destroyed. The rituals, worship, and sacrifices of the temple would be unnecessary and obsolete. In three days, Jesus would usher in by his own shed blood a new order the old covenant was replaced by a new and better covenant. The writer of the Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain of, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now the disciples, uh, who were fiercely nationalistic, all of the Jews were, found it hard to break from Judaism. The church in Jerusalem continued to meet in the temple courts for many years after the day of Pentecost. It was probably hard for John and for others to think in terms of the end, end of Judaism. However, in the end, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So the church, as the body of Christ today, is the new temple, not made by man, and there's no longer any need for the court of Gentiles or the holy of holies in a temple built of stone. Rather, anyone and everyone can have open access in the presence of God through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, who could often be a gentle and subtle teacher, in this case displayed his anger and what was happening in the place where people were invited to pray and to meditate and to worship. And he sees that something is wrong and he does something about it. His anger is there. And yet Jesus is the perfect model of what to do with righteous anger. His response is controlled and measured. He expresses it 
in a way that needs to be expressed. And yet, when questioned by those who took offense at his actions, he continues to speak or teach in a way that is consistent with his parables. The truth is there, but it's only going to be revealed to those that are truly seeking God and his kingdom. Are we seeking God with humility? Do we understand the truth of Jesus when we see or hear it? Do we in turn see, the, see things the way Jesus does, the way God does? That, that being that when we see injustice, are we moved by it? Are we angry with those who would disregard the needs of others and even trample on them to make a buck? So here Jesus shows us God's heart and sets a wonderful example for us to follow. I pray that we would follow his example. And for a concluding application, just go ahead with this thought. You know, as you go in the rest of this day in the coming week, just ask the Holy Spirit to transform your heart, making you more like Jesus. Ask for his help the next time you see an injustice that makes you angry, that your response will be in line with his purposes and will bring, bring glory to him. Before the worship team comes up in our concluding song, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time this morning to spend in your word looking at this uh, recorded uh, event of Jesus going into the temple. And maybe he did that more than once in his ministry because maybe it was something that needed to be done repeatedly. Because, Lord, we are a people that are slow to learn. And so I pray this morning that you would come in that you would uh, maybe metaphorically overturn tables in our hearts that need to be overturned, chase out the things, the sinful thoughts that we have, the ways in which we have been bound by fear and have been too afraid to speak up when we see injustice. But Father, help us to be uh, in control of our anger and that we would express it in a way that is, uh, that is right and accomplishes the purposes that you want. Father, just help us to take what, what you've spoken to us today and uh, help us to apply that to our lives and to our hearts so that we might live more in honor of you and to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Church or search on your favorite podcast app.